everybody. Welcome to episode six of the Boldly Go podcast. Today, I am speaking with one of my favorite people, Lisa Turkhurst. Lisa is a fantastic public speaker, a best-selling author many times over, and she founded and runs an organization called Proverbs 31 Ministries, which has a goal of eradicating biblical poverty. The Proverbs 31 team created the First 5 app, which is designed to provide you with a short teaching of God's Word each morning before you get started with your day. And if you haven't downloaded the First 5 app on your mobile device, don't wait. I highly recommend it. Lisa has a passion for equipping women to share their stories through Proverbs 31's annual She Speaks conference, which I have attended multiple times, and through their membership site for aspiring writers called Compel Training, of which I am a member. I have had the tremendous good fortune to be directly involved with Proverbs 31 over the last few years, and Lisa and her very talented team truly hold a special place in my heart. I am so thrilled to have her on the show so that you too can experience her words of wisdom. Here we go. Welcome, Lisa Turkhurst, to the Boldly Go podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much, Missy. It's fun to be your friend, but it's also fun to be your guest on your podcast. So this is great. I really appreciate you coming on. And there are so many things that I could talk with you about, but we have a limited amount of time. So I want to make sure we cover some of the things that I know people who listen to my podcast are are interested in. And you have taken so many bold steps in your journey of the, and the things that you offer to the world to help make the world a better place and help people communicate better. I wouldn't even know where to begin. So I have narrowed down the topic just a little bit. But why don't you start and tell the folks who are listening, how many books have you successfully published so far? 25. 25 books. That's amazing. Yes. And I can buy them pretty much anywhere. I mean, I see them in the, in the Hudson News stores in the airport and in Target and everywhere. Well, thank you. And I, I do have to say right here from the very beginning that each book that I write, you would think after writing 25 books that I would be like, okay, the next book, I've really got this process down. I train people to do this. I teach this. I coach this. You know, I write, I've written so many books. And yet, Missy, every time I sit down to write a new book, I'm smacked in the face with the reality of what a daunting task it is. Mm. And I always tell my editors, don't edit me like a New York Times bestselling author, because if you do that, you'll excuse away things that I wouldn't want excused away and be so unfair for the readers of this message. Edit me like a first time author, because I'm a first time author all over again with this message. And so, you know, book writing is, is one of those things that I think you can master some skills that make it a, a better book, a better read for the reader. But I don't know that you can master the tension of the blank page. It's always going to be there. There's a reason when you open up your computer and you see that blank page and there's this thing flashing called the cursor. Because when that thing flashes at me, it feels like it's cursing at me. Like, (laughs) you can't do this. All the good words have already been written. All the good books have already been published. You know, there's enough words out in the world and all those daunting things. And so what I have to remind myself is I am the first time author of this message. And at the same time, I am uniquely equipped to write this message based on my experiential wisdom, my voice, my passion, because 
Lisa Turkhurst has not written this message yet. Just like I would say to you, Missy, you haven't written this book yet in your voice, with your passion, with your unique experiential wisdom and biblical insight. And so, yes, there is no wasted time in the written word. No, no written words are ever wasted. Oh, I love that. And I think the very first book of yours that I read was Uninvited. And one of the best parts of that book was it, it just struck me how I felt like you and I were just sitting together over coffee and you were writing that book directly to me. And I've noticed that that seems to be a very common feeling I get when reading things that you have written, that you are writing to just one person. Is that just your writing style or is that an intentional effort of yours when you write? I think it's both. You know, I do think my friends all know I'm not really wired for a cocktail party. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really wired for a party in general. You know, I, I like a more intimate conversation as my means of connection with other people. I would much rather have dinner with a few close friends than be invited to a party where there's 50 people that I'm going to have more shallow conversations with. And I think I'm wired for depth. I'm wired for intimacy. And so when I write a book, it's partly just how I'm wired to create that kind of environment because I, I like that environment. So I'm going to create it. But also, I think sometimes as authors, we can make a mistake thinking about a crowd when reading a book is never really done in a crowd. It's a very intimate experience. So we have to have the conversation in the book and the speaking in the book through the written word. We have to have the tone of that match the intimacy that people are in when they read. And they're in intimate environments, like they're in their carpool line, they're sitting in their bed right before they go to sleep at night, or they're in you know, a little cozy corner when they're reading in a library or a bookstore, you know, so we, we have to be respecters of the environment that our reader is going to consume that message and not use a megaphone in an environment that's built for a coffee shop conversation. Right. No, that's great. So, you know, was it really easy to become a writer in the very first place when you first started out? Was everybody super excited to get your manuscript and publish it right away? <laughs> yeah, you and I both laugh at that question because <laughs> no, I, I experienced so many rejection letters. As a matter of fact, I just came across a file that had one of my old rejection letters in it. And it was kind of a nostalgic thing for me to go back and remember how many times I was told no. There were a lot of people that, were trying to get books published at the same time as me. And I had to do an honest assessment. I didn't want to be American Idol contestant whose mom had told them their whole life that they could sing really well. But beauty is sometimes in the eye of the beholder or in American Idol in the ear of the listener, you know? Right. And my mom had already always encouraged me that I could write really well. But that was when I was writing poems and country songs, you know, and I was seven, 10 years old, singing into my hairbrush and doing private poetry readings for my mom. You know, of course, my mom was going to encourage that. But I could look back over my life and see that other people had encouraged me to write as well. I won a speech contest when I was eight years old for my elementary school. 
my favorite field trip ever in all the field trips that we took where we went to the Tallahassee Democrat and I got to see how newspapers were published. My favorite assignment that teachers would give would be a book report, especially if it was an oral book report, because then I could write and I could speak and everybody else would dread it. And I would so look forward to it. So I think I had some natural indications there. I just didn't know you could grow up to be a writer or an author, you know, so I had other career aspirations that I would say, but at the end of the day, I love to read and I love to write. And so what started out as a hobby eventually turned into something so much more. And the only difference between me and all the other people who were interested in writing at the same time that I got started is I didn't give up. You know, I I was rejected by every major Christian publisher and every minor Christian publisher. (laughs) I think I was even rejected by some self-publishing houses. (laughs) I couldn't even pay them to print my book. But I I look back on that now and not to be cheesy, but I'm thankful that some of those words didn't go to print because I can see them for what they were. They were practice. They were not printable. Mm. And both written words, all worthy words, all written words are worthy words. It's just, we have to discern some are just personal, some, you know, it's just like personal for our journal and they're just personal revelations. Some are beautiful pieces of legacy to pass along to our children. I would love one page written by my great grandmother and I don't have that. I would have loved it though. I'd have framed it, put it up in my house. So I mean, that would have been such a beautiful gift. And then sometimes we write words that are supposed to be published. And, you know, I'm thankful that that my words eventually made it into some books. But even if not, I still feel like that every written word, it, it honors God. You know, we're told in Revelation that the way that we overcome the enemy is by the blood of the lamb and the power of our testimony, the word of our testimony. So I think words are very powerful and they're worth writing down. So speaking of powerful words, your book Made to Crave, which is one of my favorites and so much so that at times in my life, when I start struggling with food, I will pull it out again and go through and reread all the highlighted sections that I, you know, I tabbed and highlighted in different colors because it was so impactful to me. And so I'm super glad that that book was written, but I I know from from listening to you previously that that wasn't the easiest book to publish. And why is that? Yeah, I think because I changed the model of my assessing what was the next book to write. I I kind of had a paradigm shift. And part of it was because I took two years and studied what made some books successful and what made other books completely disconnected from the group of readers that they wanted to go for. And so I studied the craft of what readers want when they go to read a book and and what could I improve as a writer to better connect with the reader. And the number one revelation I got when I studied is that more than being taught, inspired, or instructed, a reader wants to start off a book being understood. And I think in some of my previous titles, I was so eager to teach people stuff that I started with a casting a vision for where I wanted them to go without first acknowledging where they were and acknowledging 
the pain that they were in that created the urgency for them to pick up this book in the first place. And identifying with the pain, then absolutely helping them see how to attach that pain to the right problem so that we can address the correct problem. Then I admit that I have that problem. And I, with my style, I I don't write from an area of expertise. I write from the desire of exploration. And I write books that I need. And I know I'm going to study that topic, speak about that topic, write about that topic, research some more, edit that topic, and then you know, eventually create a book from the topic. And this is a very long two-year process for me. And so I like to tackle things that, and write from my position of struggle, not my position of strength. And it's not that I'm going to wallow in it, but I'm going to do enough research and create enough life change in my own life that I can put my arms around other people and say, this works, this doesn't work. This is a perspective I've seen that can carry you forward. And this is something, if you stay here, you're just going to wallow in it. And so with Made to Crave, I just kind of changed my tactics um, in how I wrote. Also, I decided to identify a hole in the marketplace. I, I didn't want to be a Bible teacher that wrote a diet book. That's not what that book was about. I knew how to get healthy. And I feel like most people knew how to get healthy, eat less, move more, make healthier choices. So we all knew how to get healthy. What was missing was the want to, like not the how to, but the want to. And so I decided to do a deep dive exploration on how do we find the lasting emotional and spiritual motivation to want to make choices that will lead to a better how to and more success in getting food issues in under control and back in their proper place in our life. And so I did all of that with Made to Crave and it completely changed the way that I wrote that book and it changed how that book went out and connected with other people with the number one marketing strategy for that book was to unleash the power of conversation. And I wanted to get people talking about instead of this being a book about the how to, it's a book about the want to. And it worked. And that book outsold any other book that I'd written for years and years and years beforehand. That's amazing. And one of the great things about that book and some of the other ones that you've written is that it helps me to minister to others. Because, you know, when I've had friends who are struggling with some of the same things I did, I will send them one of your books that covers that very topic because I say, no, read this book and it will help you like it helped me. And so to have those tools in my toolbox as a human being, you know, who's living among other human beings who are all flawed, you know, that's been super, super helpful to me. And so your latest uh, books have all been about surviving tragedy and being able to forgive in the midst of that. You know, what led you to that, to this new journey as an author? Well, I think just paying attention to what I'm going through. And when I find my own personal struggle over something. And it's common to a lot of the women who follow me on social media or who I'm interacting with speaking engagements and things like that. You know, before I ever write words for a book, I listen, I kind of put my ear to the ground and listen, like, where are the rumblings? Where are the struggles? What's happening in women's lives? And and being self-aware enough to know, wow, this is something I'm really struggling with. 
So with it's not supposed to be this way, I noticed that I was really struggling and I could see it and hear it in other people as well, that they were struggling. Like, what do we do when we have those times where we feel like we've done all that we're supposed to do and that life should be a a formula, A plus B should equal C, one plus two should equal three. But what happens when you do one and you do two and it definitely doesn't equal three or when A and B doesn't add up to C? And how do we process that disappointment? And it's not just disappointment in circumstances and other people. It can also kind of feel disappointment with God and really wrestling through those. And, you know, the statement, it's not supposed to be this way, was something that I just kept saying over and over about some pretty painful situations in my life. And so I decided to write that book from the middle of the struggle And I think it gave that book the appropriate amount of angst that a book like that deserved. And so the core issue that I tackled with that book was disappointment, but I put the word disappointment on a scale. So on one end of the scale, it's inconvenience. The other end of the scale is disillusionment, but right in the middle is disappointment. And how do we deal with disappointment as Christians? And where does disappointment come from? And why does God allow disappointment? And how do we wrestle well through disappointments that don't resolve themselves? And how do we grow through all of that? And so that's what that book is about. And then the next book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, that one was born out of my frustration with myself that I would read all the the Bible verses on forgiveness but I had so much anxiety around the resistance that I had to forgiveness. I didn't really even understand how to forgive. I knew I was supposed to, but I didn't know exactly how to. What qualifies as this is forgiveness and this isn't? Because a lot of times like I would say, okay, I forgive this person for this, but then a couple of weeks later I'd be triggered in my pain and all those feelings of anger and bitterness and and unfairness and all of that would come crashing that on back down on me. And I would feel like a forgiveness failure. And I just kept tripping over like, if forgiveness is a cornerstone of the Christian faith, why have I never really been taught what the Bible actually says and doesn't say about forgiveness and how to practically do it? And so I decided to tackle that. And I spent over a thousand hours studying forgiveness in the Bible. Again, it wasn't because like, I was some big expert in forgiveness. It took me a thousand hours to get to the place where I knew what to do with my resistance. Hmm. And so one of the things I've heard you speak about is that forgiveness, and I think a lot of us, at least I did until I heard you say this, forgiveness is a one-time thing. That's what we think. You do it one time and then it's over and you've forgiven the person and now everything's great. But it sounds like from what you said that forgiveness is something that has to happen over and over and over again. Yeah. So forgiveness is both a decision and a process. And I think this is what we've missed in a lot of the teachings that I've heard on forgiveness. We we ask people to forgive, but then we don't give them space to go through the process of healing because, and that's really important. And actually I'd read a lot of psychology articles that says, you know, that were kind of like anti-forgiveness because they felt like it was forcing people to heal too quickly, which was not healing properly. 
And so I really put some intentionality around, I want to honor people's space that they need for healing. I want to, because for every fact of how we've been hurt, there's an emotional and sometimes physical impact that that had on us. So we have to honor the fact and the impact. We can forgive for the fact of what happened in a moment of decision, like we're going to forgive this person, but the impact of, of what that cost us, you know, it's going to leak into our life for days, weeks, years, sometimes decades, sometimes a whole lifetime. We're still experiencing the impact of what happened. And so a lot of my resistance came from the fact that I felt like if I forgave this person who hurt me, that I was saying what they did was okay. And it wasn't okay. Or that I would inadvertently give them permission to just keep hurting me over and over and over. You know, and so one of the verses that I really wanted to go there with is when Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven. And so we have to take verses like that and we have to consider who Jesus was. Like we have to consider what Jesus modeled in the midst of what he taught. And so Jesus never modeled for us abusive behavior towards other people. You know, what what Jesus modeled for us was truly taking in consideration how do we live what is best for the collective whole of a community and at the same time protecting the life of the individual. And, you know, Jesus did lay down his life for a friend, but it was for a holy purpose. You know, Jesus laid down his life for for the greater good of other people. Jesus did not lay down his life to perpetuate sinful behaviors. You know, it's quite the opposite. And so when Jesus says forgive 70 times seven, I think what Jesus is teaching there is you want to put yourself, you want to have enough emotional or physical distance that if this other person never changes, that you can still forgive their behaviors 70 times seven without getting destroyed in the process. But he doesn't mean stand in front of them, let them beat the tar out of you every day. No, it's like you have no say so over whether this other person changes or doesn't change. So if they continue that you would have to forgive them 70 times seven, then you need to create enough emotional or maybe even physical distance with that person that from afar, you can forgive them without getting destroyed in the process. So is there healing without forgiveness? Such a good question. You know, I do think that you can find some healing patterns and some some healing opportunities. And I'll answer this question just for myself. It it wasn't going to be possible for me to heal without going through this process of forgiveness. And here's why. Because forgiveness for me was my opportunity to put a stake in the ground and say, I deserve to stop suffering because of what this other person has done to me. And so I've got to detach my ability to move forward and heal from the choices of this other person that I have no say so over. So forgiveness became my opportunity to sever that attachment 
to the hurtful incident that happened. And for me to say, I can only be in charge of my own choices and I am choosing to heal and move forward. So I am forgiving this other person and really placing them in the hands of God so that God can properly deal with them. But also what I've discovered, Missy, that helps me a lot with the whole notion of how unfair this is. Like, wait, I'm the one that was hurt and now I have to do the heavy lifting of forgiving. But what I've decided in my mind is, is that, and what I see modeled in the Bible is forgiveness doesn't originate with me. Forgiveness flows to me from God. And as I receive God's forgiveness, I let it pass through me to other people. And so forgiveness is not about my determination, whether this person deserves to be forgiven or not. Forgiveness is my cooperation with the healing that happens as God's forgiveness passes through my heart. And it's me declaring my heart is too beautiful of a place for bitterness, anger, resentment, and the chaos of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is just a weight too heavy for the human heart to bear. Mm, that's beautiful. So so what role does therapy then play in the forgiveness journey? I mean, I, I've definitely done my own bit of work in therapy and I'm a huge fan of it. But you know, when do you know you need it or when should you seek it? Well, I feel like everyone should spend some time with a really good Christian therapist trained in whatever issue that you're facing. And we all have issues. We all have things that have hurt us, harmed us, or changed our perception of, you know, and we can have healthy perspectives, but we can also have unhealthy perspectives. And so I think it's really good to go see Christian counselor. And for me, it was my opportunity for someone to someone to listen and look at and acknowledge that I had been hurt in the situation that I had walked through. And, you know, one of the exercises my counselor had me do is write out all the ways I've been hurt on three by five cards and put them on the floor in his office. And when I did that, and there was so many cards, he looked at me and said, the best thing that someone could say to me, he said, Lisa, I believe you. What happened to you was wrong. And if nobody's ever said to you that they're sorry, I'll say that I'm sorry. And that was such a powerful time. And then he didn't just leave me focused on what the other person did. He helped me navigate how to let this stuff work for me instead of against me. And and then helped me create more self-awareness in my life so that I didn't put myself in a position to be hurt or didn't just stay in a place of being unaware of how I was also perpetuating that hurt onto other people. And so it just became a safe environment for me to heal from the impact. The fact of what happened would always be there, but the healing process of the impact that it all had on me was something I needed a counselor to help me navigate. And so talk a little bit, if you could, you know, based on what you've learned in therapy, where did boundaries come in in relation to forgiveness? Right. Because obviously we don't want to forgive if it means we're going to get, continue to get hit over the head. So how does how does that play out? Well, I think boundaries really play out in a very, very important way 
of helping us understand it's never going to work to control other people. So we have to do honest assessments of how much access we give to other people to us. Like how much access of my heart am I going to give to someone who's proven over and over that they're not responsible to have that kind of access. And if I can't require them or make them or control them or, you know, whatever, if I can't, if I can't make this other person handle that access with more responsibility, then I have to reduce the access I give them down to the responsibility level that they've demonstrated they're capable of. And so that's a boundary is it's not shoving other people away. It's inviting in safe parameters so that we can be respectful of other people and they can be respectful of us. No, that's great. And it sounds like you've really found some purpose in your pain, you know, to use what you've been through and what you've learned from it to help others. And that's, that's an amazing part of your journey, in my opinion. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what does it mean to find purpose in your pain? And, you know, did that have any kind of a a healing effect on you? And how does that work for other people? Yeah, I think that just first acknowledging pain stinks. (laughs) There's just no (laughs) way around it. And, you know, I don't want to jump too quickly to, yeah, the pain was there, but there was purpose. You know, I just, I don't know. I think sometimes we just need to sit with reality that, that pain is maddening and daunting and crushing and sometimes even debilitating. And, you know, there's no words of Jesus I relate to more than the Matthew or Mark chapter 14, where Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus himself said, you know, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. God, everything is possible for you. You know, so take this cup from me. And then he utters those words, yet not my will, but yours be done. And I, you know, I don't want to too quickly get to not my will, but yours be done. I, I want to just acknowledge like, wow, that's so profound that Jesus, perfect humanity, I mean, perfect divinity wrapped in the skin of humanity, his soul could get overwhelmed to the point of sorrow, you know? And so I think that, yes, it is beautiful to find purpose in the pain and it's allowing Jesus to use that, what we've been through to help other people. And I think that's beautiful and I think it's healing, but I I also think that it's a holy exercise to sit in the pain and fully acknowledge it and recognize that the most healing thing that we can ever do is to surrender to the Lord in the midst of our pain and say simply, you must see something bigger here than what I can see. I don't like this. I don't even want to acknowledge that there could be some divine purpose in it all, but I am willing to surrender it to you and trust you, Lord. I'm just going to trust you. And at the same time, I'm not going to deny my pain but I'm going to trust you in the midst of it. And honestly, Missy, the way that I can oftentimes see purpose in the pain is by tracing God's hand of faithfulness backwards. It's sometimes impossible to cast that vision forward, but I can go backwards and I can go, wow, I was really in pain over that five years ago. And I can see how God was so faithful 
in that it didn't turn out like I thought it would. It doesn't look like I wish it would, but God was so faithful then. So therefore I'm going to borrow the faith looking backward that I need to walk forward. Mm, Remembering all the good things that you can see that came out of it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Lisa, I can't tell you how much you and your words and your books and your She Speaks conference and all the, uh, the, the Instagram posts and everything that you do just helps me to walk stronger in my own faith. And you've helped countless others do the same. So I thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing what you've learned and your words of wisdom. And I, I really look forward to getting comments back from people, you know, to how they were blessed by what you shared here today. So thank you so much. Oh, you are so, so welcome, Missy. It's always a joy to be with you. And any chance I get to process life with you, I'm going to take it. So let's don't wait to have our next conversation just for the podcast. Let's connect heart to heart. You You know, I like those small around the table conversations, right? Absolutely. (laughs) I will be back in Charlotte soon, I'm sure. (laughs) That sounds great. I'll take you up on that. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Missy. Thanks. Bye. Wow, such a pleasure to chat with Lisa. It's so great to get some perspective from such a prolific author about her writing process. And maybe you might have a story you want to get written while some of Lisa's advice for writers was actually pure gold. Like when she said to write for an audience of one, don't use a megaphone when it should be a coffee shop conversation. And having read several of her books, I can say that this is definitely true of Lisa's writing style because her books always make you feel like she is your best girlfriend sitting across the table from you. And even though she was rejected by every single major book publisher and Christian publisher when she was getting started, she never gave up. And today, you can buy her books pretty much anywhere books are sold. It's a great lesson for the rest of us. Don't give up. She said that I write books that I need. She writes from a desire of exploration about problems she has. She said we should write from a position of struggle and not from a position of strength. And I think it's so clear that Lisa always writes about what she has personally struggled through. Her writing voice is that of a confidant and a trusted friend. So if you're going through a really hard season, and many of us are, considering everything that's going on in the world and in our personal lives, then please take a look at Lisa's books because there's probably one that she's written that will help you. It's such a profound comment that she made that forgiveness is both a decision and a process. We ask people to forgive, but then we don't give them the space to go through the process of healing. Lisa says that forgiveness gave her the ability to separate herself from the hurtful incident that happened, and she made that choice to heal and move forward. And my favorite quote of all from this episode, unforgiveness is a weight that is too heavy for the human heart to bear. So good. And I love that she is an advocate for therapy like me. We all have trauma in our lives and in our past, and a therapist can help us to find healing and transformation. If you have trauma in your life, which you do because you're human, and you don't yet have a therapist, please consider getting one. It's one of the greatest things you can do to care for your mental and emotional health. I hope you were blessed by this conversation. And if you know someone who needs to hear some of the things Lisa said, please forward this to them. And also please share it on social media. You can connect with Lisa on her website at www.lisaturkhurst.com and on social media at Lisa Turkhurst. That is spelled L-Y-S-A-T-E-R-K-E-U-R-S-T. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lisa. This is Missy Young signing off.